We've got a new text this morning, connected to the old text, but new. So, we've moved on a little bit. We're still going to talk about sanctification for a number of weeks, but we're going to talk about the other side of sanctification. So, uh, it'll hopefully be a little more pleasant for you than the, the previous few months have been. So, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." And above all else, sorry, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning, that indeed we would see Jesus high and lifted up, that we might see his incredible majesty and supremacy that believing in his supremacy, we might see his sufficiency on our behalf. Open our eyes to the hope to which you have called us in Christ. Open our eyes to the immeasurable greatness of his power, which is at work in us and for us who believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. And we ask this for his glory and for our good. Amen. At our last Presbytery meeting, we had an examination. A young man was uh, coming to us for licensure. Uh, He wanted to begin, he was actually going to take over the RUM, uh, the RUF rather, ministry. I get confused because RUM is the national ministry, RUF is the local ministry. I don't understand, but it's okay. Anyway, uh, he came and one of the questions that was uh, brought to him uh, from the examiner on the floor was about the difference between justification and sanctification. The difference between how it is we are made right with God and how it is that we are made righteous by God. And his answer um, prompted a follow-up question from one of the senior uh, statesmen in our presbytery. And his answer prompted me to ask another follow-up question. (laughs) Because what he had said was that he thought that both justification and sanctification were monergistic. And for those of you who don't understand that word, have never heard that word, uh, it comes from mono, one, and erg, work. So the idea is that one works. And in justification, only one person works, and that person is God. So the question was, how many people work in our sanctification? Is it monergistic, just God at work, or just us at work? Or is it synergistic, God and us working together. Unfortunately, our discussion got cut off by the people who care about parliamentary procedure. And so we never really got to the root of what we should have been talking about in all of this. And this morning in the text, we sort of touch upon that. That's why I bring it up. Not that I have some beef about presbytery. Uh, It's really about Seeing, thinking through this question in light of this particular text. The big idea this morning is that Christ-rooted identity creates Christ-like character. That our Christ-rooted identity 
will eventually produce Christ-like character. I want to make sure we have the long-term view here, not an instantaneous perfectionism taking place. Let's start with the reality that having put on Christ, we are new people. In other words, we have a new identity. Something has changed about us. We look back at the previous text we've been looking at, and we note, we remember in verse 10 that Paul says, you have put on the new self. That language of, of taking off and putting on clothing. And he says, you've already put on the new self. In other words, you have put on Christ, and that this putting on of Christ in our conversion is the foundation for our sanctification. We have to remember this. Identity. Identity is about who you are. Identity is your sense of who you are, your sense of self. And what happens is you tend to act in light of who you think you are, of how you view yourself in this world. I remember eons ago, Cub Scouts, one of those projects where you put the macaroni together on the paper with the glue and create something, you know. Yeah, Ken's all over that. And you paint it, and, you know, I painted it gold, you know, with the Cub Scout colors, you know. And I don't know why I wrote this, but I wrote, from your dumb son. That's how I viewed myself at that point in my life. Dumb. I'm not sure what failure may have preceded that, but I acted in light of how I viewed myself. I spoke out of, out of the, f- the fullness of my heart, which said, basically, you're worthless, Steve. Our identity shapes our behavior, our actions, our choices. And what Paul wants them to understand uh, in verse 10 and following is that we have shifted our identity. We have taken off the old self, Adam, and we have put on this new self, Christ. And because there is a change in identity, there is meant to be, as we will see, a corresponding change in how we think and how we live that resonates with the new man instead of the old man. Christ lived a very different way than Adam did. He submitted to God's standards Adam, when it came down to it, said, I want what I want when I want it, and not I want what God wants. Christ lived by faith, hope, and love. Adam, after the fall, and all who are in Adam, tend to live by fear, despair, and selfishness. And so part of what it means to change your identity is that you have a a new organizing set of principles, so to speak, that faith, hope, and love, as opposed to fear, despair, and selfishness. Those are all rooted to our sense of identity of who we are in God's world. Sinclair Ferguson notes that failure to deal with the presence of sin can often be traced back to spiritual amnesia, forgetting our new, real identity. In other words, we, we forget to deal with the sin in our lives precisely because we've forgotten who we are. And therefore, we think that sin should be there. 
that that sin is okay. That that sin is not a big problem. And instead, we're called forth to remember that because we are in Christ and that those are things that Christ would never do, that those sins are to be removed, to be shed from that life. Too often we suffer from spiritual amnesia. We are prone to forget who we are in Christ and we begin to act like Adam. This is a problem that is seen so clearly among orphans who now have homes. It's so easy for them to kind of lapse back into orphan think that they have to provide for themselves, that they have to try and chisel out any little thing just for themselves instead of trusting parents to provide. It's a difficult transition to make, and that identity can slip back into the old identity. This identity comes to us this new identity, not like, you know, becoming a new person in the witness protection program, but uh, it's a, not a result of our work, but it is through faith in Christ. And so it is, it is completely something that is given to us by the mercy, the grace, and the goodness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And what we see here is that not only does Christ give us a new identity, But as Paul talks about, Christ gives us himself. In other words, as he talks about, we are filled with the fullness of God. We are filled with Christ, Paul talks about in this the earlier passage we've been looking at. There's this idea of which we participate, as Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1, in the nature of God. We participate. We are partakers of the divine nature. Something unimaginable is going on. The energy of God is at work in us. No, we do not become infinite, eternal, and unchanging. But the idea is that we are becoming in character like He is in character, and we are doing so precisely because the power of God is at work in us through our union with Christ. We haven't arrived, though. Because Paul says there in verse 12, this new, this uh, new image, or sorry, this, this new self is being renewed. The new self is not perfect. It is not complete yet. We're a work in progress and process. It's taking place. And so while already we have the new identity, we do not yet act or live as that new person. Okay? We're still coming to grips with it. There's a show that, that uh, I just recently became aware of because, you know, Amy watches HGTV and they have all those home improvement shows and there's a new one, Rehab Addict. Now, doesn't that sound fun? <laughs> and it's someone who's, it's a woman who's addicted, so to speak, to rehabbing homes. Okay? Tim has done some of that stuff. Okay? And, you know, you take a home that's in need of lots of love and care, and actually the ones that she buys need lots of love and care. The one that she was working on the one day was a home she bought for a dollar from the local government because it was just abandoned. And so although it has changed hands, so to speak, it is now, now belongs to her, there's this process of renovation that, depending on how bad it is, can take a, lo- you know, a long time. We are like that. We have been purchased, not for a dollar, 
but by the precious blood of Christ. And now he is at work to renovate us. And it is not done instantaneously. It is done through a long, sometimes arduous process. She's not just throwing new paint over it. She's pulling down things. She's ripping up things, putting in new things. That's a great picture of the process of sanctification. Paul says there as well in, uh, in verse 12 that this renewal takes place with knowledge, the knowledge of God. And so we understand that God transforms us through word and through spirit. These are two of the means that he uses. He uses other means, but these are two of the means that he uses, which is why Paul in Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so what Paul is saying is that your mind also needs to be renewed so that you can begin to think as God thinks, so that you can begin to evaluate the moral quality of things as God does, as opposed to how Adam does. That's part of our this process of sanctification is the renewing of the mind so that we begin to think as God thinks. And so in Christ... We are new people who are being renewed until we are like Jesus. So now we get back to our actual text as opposed to our previous text. But there's, I wanted you to see the connection that's there. Being in Christ, we are chosen, holy, and loved. In other words, not only do we have a new identity, we also have a new status. Those are different. These are different things. Identity, as I said, is about who you are, your sense of self. Status, on the other hand, is about your position with respect to other people. I remember we had a Dodge Stratus for a while, and I remember some really bad Saturday Night Live skit. And the guy was a middle management guy, and he kept going, When I drive a Dodge Stratus, that was his symbol of his status. Okay? Pretty lame symbol, if you ask me, as one who drove a Dodge Stratus. Okay, Status is about who we are with respect to other people. We talk about immigration status. That strikes home to me because we had to deal with all this stuff with Asher and his immigration status because they didn't properly process the paperwork when he came into the country. He was here, but not here, if you understand what I mean. Um, (laughs) So he's, you know... We had to work through some of these things. And sometimes your status can be a source of fear and uncertainty. Precisely because there are some statuses that are earned or achieved. There was a recital here the other night. Some of those people have worked long and hard to be able to say, I am a pianist. I'm not one of those people. I could say, I am a pianist. But within... 2.5 seconds of me sitting behind a piano, you'd quickly realize that I am not a pianist. It's not something that you can confer upon yourself. It is something that is earned, something that is achieved. Same thing. I am a professional athlete. Right. Okay, you can say it. Doesn't make you so. Wanting to be a baseball player does not make me a professional baseball player. Okay? But there are some statuses or sometimes status, is automatic. It's something you grow into. Motherhood. 
It happens. You don't go to school. You don't practice really hard so that you can become a mother. You become a mother so that you can learn how to become a mother. (laughs) You know, there's the baby. And maybe you already have some of those skills like, oh, how to change a diaper, that kind of stuff down. But there's so many things about being a mother that you, you don't know until you actually have to do them. And so motherhood is actually a very humbling sort of thing. It's a status you have in which you, and you grow into it. So which of these two things is our status before God? Is it something we achieve or is it something that we are, we, it is granted to us and therefore we grow into? Well, let's see. Paul says that they were chosen by God. They're part of a chosen or a chosen nation, a chosen people. And so we see that this is, you know, theologically, this is not a, a status that they have achieved, but really it is a status which is born of grace. In Christ, God chose us, as, it's, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. This is an uncomfortable truth. Partially because we we recognize that we are not in control. It is God who determines who is saved and who is not going to be saved. That's an uncomfortable truth. We're Americans, by golly. We want our self-sovereignty. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. That's part of, in a sense, also our sinful nature. But here we see Paul rubbing up against that with this notion that we are part of a chosen nation. Though we are justified individually, we become part of a larger group, a body, a chosen nation, by his will and by his purpose. A status conferred upon us instead of one that is achieved by us. Not only are we chosen, but we are also, Paul says, holy set apart for God's use, for God's purpose. It's not something that we earn or that we have conferred upon ourselves. We have not said, you know what? I'm sanctified now. But God declares us to be holy. He declares us to be set apart. And so we are to begin to live as if we're set apart. In other words, we're to begin to live in light of this Declared reality that God has made to come to pass. And so our choices in sanctification begin to reflect what God has declared to be true about who we are. Thirdly, he also says, beloved, that we are loved. We are the loved ones. In other words, that God has set his affection upon us, that God will also be loyal to us as a man is meant to be loyal to his spouse. We are to live, in other words, as people who already are loved as opposed to living as people who are trying to be loved. It's very different. When you know you're loved... You can relax. You want to please the beloved. There is a response of, of, of gratitude and joy that goes on in there, and it's a positive thing. There's no fear. There's no doubt. It's 
security. But when you're acting to try and earn or merit love, what happens is there's desperation. There's fear, there's doubt. And usually those things are corrosive to the relationship. If we've ever seen the desperate person, I've been the desperate person. Okay, you know, you so badly want to have a girlfriend. It's like, stay away from this guy. <laughs> you know? When we live that way before God, that does not glorify Him. What glorifies Him is resting in His love and acting, at, living as one who already is loved. That's like my kids. My kids don't have to seek my love. They have my love. We're to live as those who have already received the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, in Deuteronomy 7, which Mike read for us already, and in Deuteronomy 14, these three strands are kind of woven together. Because they're a a chosen nation, they're chosen to be holy, and they're chosen because they are loved by God. For instance, Deuteronomy 14. For you are a people holy to the Lord our God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so God says to Israel, I picked you out of everybody. I picked you as a treasured possession of mine. I picked you to be holy. And again, in Deuteronomy 7, I'm going to read that again because maybe your minds don't remember what Mike said. For you are a people holy or set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And so we have a problem, so to speak. If we ask the question, why does God love us? God says, because I love you. Not because you're handsome, not because you've got an award-winning smile, not because you're smart, not because you're stupid. That's the reality of unconditional election. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about, it's about something in God that wants to love those who are unlovable and unloving. Why did he choose them? Because he loved them. Why did he love them? Because he loved them. And he was keeping the covenant that he had made with Abraham, the faithfulness of God through multiple generations seen yet again. But something happens. We see that Israel, though she has this identity, though she has this status, forfeits it through incredible and radical disobedience. And so we see that Jesus comes as the chosen servant of God, the holy servant of God, the one who was said from the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus comes as the true Israel to be all that 
Israel was not. Not only is Jesus the true Israel, but we see that those who are then united to him, both Jew and Gentile, become the renewed or new or true Israel. As Paul says essentially at the end of Galatians. Ephesians chapter 1 also ties these things together because it was in love that he chose us, but also, Paul says, that we were chosen to be holy and blameless before him. So these three strands that we see in Deuteronomy, we also see in Ephesians and in Colossians. We are chosen, we are holy, we are loved. And so sanctification is not about earning a status, but living in light of that status. There's a big difference between the triple-A the baseball player who gets called up and wants to stay in the pros. He's working really hard. He's doing everything he can. He's hustling. He's fearful. And the guy who has made it to the majors and relaxes and plays, he's just what he is, a big league player. As Christians, we're the latter, not the former. We're not desperate. We're not fearful. We're secure. Not in a secure, and not in a sense that that means we cannot do anything, but that we express our love and gratitude out of that security. And so our new status is intended to reshape how we think and how we act, which brings us to the last part of what I want to say this morning. And uh, just a reminder, what I'm doing here is just uh, similar to what I did on the first, of the previous passage, the bigger picture of sanctification, and then we're going to look at some of the individual aspects of it. So, what Paul says to them is, put on the characteristics of the new man. In other words, it's time for a new lifestyle. Yes, oh, sorry, yet, uh, yeah, it should be yes. And an imperative or a command follows all of these indicatives or facts. Paul says, in light of all of these things that God has already done for you, therefore, you, are, you ought to do this. And unfortunately, the, I think the ESV doesn't really have the therefore. Put on then. The then functions as the therefore. Okay? As a result of those things, therefore do this, and they are, we are commanded, just like the Colossians were, to put on something. It is because of those facts that we are to clothe ourselves. But if we remember, we've already, he says, you've already put on the new man, you've already put on Christ, and so in other words, we could look at it this way. When you get dressed up for a nice evening out, you put on the main, th- the main dress or the main suit, but then you accessorize. Unless you're a man, you don't accessorize. Well, you might. You tie, maybe cufflinks, maybe a tie pin. But women, they're into the accessories. You've got to have the right shoes, right little bracelet, maybe a little necklace, the right earrings, okay, uh, the right handbag, all that fun kind of stuff. Christ is the main outfit, what he's talking about here are sort of the accessories. You've put on the main thing, so now put on the rest of it, like Matt's little hanky right here. Okay. 
<laughs> where, where would Matt be without his little hanky? He just wouldn't be Matt, right, on Sunday morning. So let's, let's keep in mind, we've already put on the main thing. So now let's, let's put on the things that go with it. In a sense, it's like you've got the main course of the meal. Now let's put the things that supplement the main course of the meal. A weak analogy, analogy, I know. But this reminds us that sanctification is not just about getting rid of things. It's not just about putting off certain things. And we tend to think about sanctification merely as, I am not supposed to sin. As if that was everything that was sanctification. And there's an ask, that's part of it, but it's not the whole of it. And yet we live as if that's all it is. I have to avoid sin. That's all I must do. And so we, we're very focused on, on avoiding our sin. And what, what happens is that we, we, we forget that we're supposed to bring life, so to speak, to certain things. That certain things are going to now become part of our practice that were not part of our practice before. But because this is a command... We recognize that we have a responsibility before God to make choices and to do things. And one of the passages I mentioned in discussing this at Presbytery was Philippians 2. Work out your salvation, therefore, with fear and trembling. Okay, So we, we work something out. Why are we to do this? For, or because, God is at work in you to will and work according to his purposes. And so we see that God is at work, and it's precisely because God is at work that now I can work in a helpful, productive way. I have the responsibility of working out my salvation, of, of not earning my salvation, okay, but living in light of my salvation, so it works out into my experience and into my practice. But the only reason I can do this is because God is at work in me by the Holy Spirit. But I still um, will and act or work. And so we see that both God is working and I'm working. It's synergistic. We work together with God for our sanctification. While sanctification is utterly gracious, we are not passive, as some people might teach. But we are active. We are engaged in the process of our sanctification. And here, instead of the vice list that we saw before, we see Paul with a virtue list. It's not a set of commands. It's about character traits. Look at that. For a moment. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. This is about who you are. Now, those come to the surface in certain instances. If you're a patient person, then, you know, when the clock keeps ticking, you're patient. Not like me as I wait on the phone with the IRS forever and ever and ever. That's God's process of making me a patient person. Um, so it's about character, not about a list of rules, not about that kind of stuff at this point, but Paul is talking about character. For instance, let's tie this together with 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. 
Because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so, as the sermon is titled, Christ our sanctification, we, Paul is there confessing in 1 Corinthians 1 that Christ is our sanctification. He is the one in whom we are sanctified. We are set apart. And that means that he's also the goal of our sanctification. Meaning, we are to become conformed to his likeness, as Paul says in Romans 8, 29. He is, he is the means of our sanctification, and he is the goal of our sanctification. We are to become as he is morally. So, since our new identity is in Christ, since our new status is in Christ, our new heart should also reflect his heart, his character. Paul does this a little differently in Ephesians. He talks about it, the passage that we read at the end, of imitating the Father. Seeking to become just like him. And he goes through a lot of these similar character traits. And what's going on, he says, the Father is like this, therefore you are to be like this, because you are to bear the family likeness. When I was a young kid, um, I, I liked to go through the family photo albums. I don't know why. Maybe it was because my parents really didn't talk about the past. That they didn't, sort of intrigued me. So I would spend time flipping through that. And one of the things that I discovered, and as I was thinking about this recently, remembered, all of the box scores of what my father played in school. And not just the box scores, but the headlines. My dad was a star. He was a really good basketball player when he was in school. He was never big enough to be able to play college and all that kind of stuff. But he was really good at that. And I really wasn't. And it's easy for us to see the high standard that has been set by God, who has been set by Jesus, and for us to get incredibly discouraged by the fact that we're not there. Just like, maybe that's one reason I felt like I never had my father's approval because I didn't live up to his legend. I don't know. We can do those sorts of things to ourselves. And we can start to get discouraged in our Christian life if we forget that God understands we have not arrived yet. If we think that we're supposed to instantaneously arrive to the goal and meet the standard every single minute of every single day. That's not what it's there for. That's, that's not what's, what God intends. He does not intend for us to get discouraged and beat down by this. He intends for us to just be moving in the right direction. To be growing into this. And so we often fail like children who disappoint their parents. But you know what? They're still children of their parents. Their parents don't cast them out. Their parents recognize that it's part of the process 
for them to grow. When my daughter gets a math problem wrong, I don't cast her out. Yes, Jay. Do I cast you out? No. I don't. I'm the one reminding her. It's part of the process of learning. It's not all downloaded instantaneously and we have mastered it. It's a process. It's practice. It's growth. And our sanctification is a process. It's called a work of God. There is growth that takes place. God does not expect you to have it all together three months after you you decide to follow Jesus. That's not meant to say we should be light on sin, but to remember it takes place within a context. In Galatians, Paul kind of addresses this a little differently, which is why we had our confession of faith out of it. Paul says that, that these character traits are actually the fruit of the Spirit. Many of these things that he lists here. The result of the Spirit working in us. So we see, kind of looking at this from all these different perspectives, these different angles, what we see is, again, that idea of God is at work in us. And it's, it's said in a number of different ways. It's talked about because of our union with Christ and we have received the fullness of God. It's talked about and we have the Holy Spirit who produces fruit in us. So there's these perspectives that help us understand God's work. But Paul here is also stressing our responsibility, our work in that process, to be engaged with that process as opposed to passive in that process. Kevin DeYoung notes that holiness is not ultimately about living up to a moral standard. It's about living in Christ and living out of our real vital union with him. So it all takes place precisely because we are united to Jesus That fullness of Christ overflows in us to begin to produce these virtuous mindsets and actions. So I think that the answer to the unfinished presbytery discussion is that sanctification is synergistic. We work with God, though he works far more than we do, as we've seen. We're like kids learning to write with their parent's hand over theirs, making all of the motions, but the child is learning how to, it's learning the muscle memory in that process. They both work so that the child can learn how to write. But the parent already knows. This is completely for the child's benefit. God already knows how to be holy and patient and forgiving, and now he's working to teach us how to do this. We are involved. We're not merely passive. God has given us these new identities in Christ. He has given us this new status in Christ. Our union with Christ also means that we begin to live out of that fullness of God that Paul talked about uh, earlier in uh, in chapter 2 that has been given to us. And so getting the order right matters. Incredibly. And so, are you trying to live out your status or identity? Or are you living to achieve a status or identity before God? 
That makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for what you have done of how, in a sense, you humble us because we did not deserve to be chosen. We did not deserve to be called holy. We did not deserve to be loved by you. And yet we are. So that humbles us. Lord, we're reminded of the sufficiency of Christ in all of this. That he is the one who is sufficient to sanctify us. Using the appointed means of word and spirit. Providence. Sacraments. He is the one who sanctifies us. Applying the work of redemption to how we live now. So, Father, I ask that you would help us to be honest with ourselves. To see, perhaps, the places where we've become disengaged, uninvolved, unconcerned. That we might take seriously our responsibility, but do so in a way in which we are always looking to do it by faith, in grace. That sense of faith, hope, and love. As people who know that they have been granted something amazing in the gift of salvation. And are really just looking to see it manifested in how they live day to day. So continue to change us. In this act of free grace you call sanctification. In Christ's name, amen.